Hey everybody, this is Michael Antonovich bringing you this week's episode of the Kickstart Podcast presented by 60 Helmets. Um, So we went about it a different way this week. There's really no racing. I mean, there was New Zealand, but we didn't go to that. There's not a lot to recap. I've written about it at length on the website already, so check that out if you haven't. Uh, Instead, I called up my buddy Brett Smith behind wewentfast.com. And specifically, we wanted to talk about this book that he has, the 1972 Grand Prix Motocross Championship by Terry Pratt. Brett found copies of this book, as you'll hear um, from Terry's sister. Terry's passed away by now, and it was his life work to put this book together. And it's a stunning look at what life was like following the GP series in 72, where it's, you know, a, a very early time in motocross history. And it's so well done. Like, there are certain things to it, the photos, the stories. It's very much a sign of the times, and it's something that you look at now, you know, 40-some-odd years later, and think, like, wow, it was so simple and so cool then, and you kind of get a little jealous, like, ah, we can't do that at all. So in talking to Brett, we learn about the story of how he came to, you know, get his place in the industry through Motorworld.com, or through Motorworld TV, through other things that he's done, different writing jobs, and now into his own thing where he owns his own website. It's cool to have another journalist on the podcast because Brett's not direct competition. Yeah, we're going for profile stories and things like that in motorcycle racing, but we're not battling for ad dollars. We're not doing these things. It's just two buddies that recognize each other's talents and passion for the sport and just want to talk about it. It's it's cool. It's just a fun conversation. If you want the book, and I highly, highly recommend it, you need to act fast. There's only so many copies of them left, and when they're gone, they're gone. There are no more prints. There are no more negatives or no more nothing what brett has and what he's going to get from terry's sister is is this it this is it it's 40 dollars, so it is a little pricey uh especially when there is so much free content out in the world but it's well worth it it's something that you'll look back on 40 years from now and just think oh my god that's um, unbelievable when we're riding all electric motorcycles to you know the displeasure of many of you so give it a listen thanks for checking it out brett's uh, instagram handle is we went fast his website is we went fast.com it's good it's good to talk to this guy we'll probably have him back on here in a couple months let us know what you think we'll do more stuff like this thanks for listening brett i think a lot of people that follow the industry closely know who you are or have read one of your articles or or knows a little bit of your backstory but for those that don't because it's so easy to get confused on which journalist or which motor reporter is who give us some insight on to how you got started to where you are i always assume that nobody knows who i am yeah that's what when i when i run into people at the races i'll introduce myself and they're like yeah i I know who you are i'm like okay well i just didn't think we'd ever met before so sorry (laughs) um i grew up in michigan and all i wanted to do in life was be a motocross magazine editor that was like my only goal in life and um, I was never fast enough to make it as a pro, so I just hounded companies until they finally relented, which is how I wound up producing Moto World on ESPN um, in 2001. I was from Michigan, and I just kept hounding them and hounding them and hounding them, and they finally like, why would a kid from Michigan want to come down here and do an internship? Because they usually hire Georgia State students, Georgia University of Georgia students, Georgia Tech, you know, places like that. And they just said, fine, show up on this date. And I drove 800 miles. And I remember everyone sitting on the front step 
when I got out of my truck the first day and I could tell by the looks on their faces they're like holy cow the kid actually showed up this is crazy and that's how I broke into the industry per se okay the motor world thing that was at the time like the closest thing that we were ever going to get to motocross sports center so how cool was it to work on some of those projects because looking back it was such a uh, prehistoric kind of way to do things but you guys killed it i mean that's exactly what moto media was and it's so backwards to what it is now yeah it was an absolute dream job and i came in to motorboard later so i i graduated in 2000 and in january of 2001 i went down to georgia full time um they they said they were going to start a, a magazine motorboard the magazine and it was actually announced on television um the owner of the company went on television and said, we're going to start this magazine. And that's what kind of lured me back there because I had an offer to go work for dirt bike magazine. I had an offer to go work for the AMA after college. And I chose to go back down to Georgia to work with motor world because again, they were going to start a magazine because that's what I really wanted to do. I had no intentions of being a television producer that all happened by accident. But now looking back having that experience we're all um expected to have all these different digital skills and i'm really glad i have those skills now understanding the power of video and how to produce and how to edit that was really helpful and yeah working on motor world was like i said such a dream because we were literally flying around the country flying around the world just i remember one time we spent eight weeks out in california just doing whatever waking up in the morning going what are we going to do today? Which test track are we going to go to? Who are we going to go interview? It was it was amazing. It was so much fun. That was in 2003, um, the year, the month that McGrath announced his retirement. The MC thing, you know, you're there to announce his retirement and see how that goes. But you guys doing that, you're on a TV time schedule. It's not like the instantaneous, there's a race to get it up on the website first. So give me some insight as to what the workflow was like back then. The workflow on the show? Yeah, just like of all that stuff because you guys had one weekly show. It wasn't like it was a nightly news show. There was so little breaking news then. So, you know, we're covering the races. You're, you're, you're putting the races up on the show. And you're right. The, the internet was so young still. You go find out who won, but you weren't watching much video in 01, 02, 03. Um, the first video I ever ever remember watching online was Carrie Hart's backflip in what two thousand. Yeah. I was interning that summer, and it was like it took forever to download that little clip. Which and it was all pixelated, probably. Yeah, it was terribly pixelated. Um, but McGrath retiring, obviously, we all found out about it. If you weren't there in the room, you found out about it on Cycle News, right? Or I would say that, you know, or like Supercross dot com, because that was I remember the Supercross dot com forum at like 12, 13 years old, and just everything was going on there. Where Moto World, the or, first, uh, what was the other one? Moto Talk or something like that. Yes. The first breaking news thing I remember being a big deal during my time at Moto World was when the Jam Sports oh my Clear God. Channel split happened. I was on vacation. It was over Christmas. Now, the, the, I remember the fax coming in in November. Like, literally, a fax. I still have it. Fax came in with a press release from the AMA announcing that we're going to split. We're going to, you know, we're going to split with Clear Channel. Mm -hmm. AMA is going to partner with Jam Sports now. And 
which was a concert production company and yeah right our leader at motor world knew like what a big deal this was and he didn't have much a hand in day-to-day production of the show but on that understanding what a big deal it was he did and he made sure that the leaders from clear channel came down and got interviewed on motor world scott hollingsworth the ama came down and got interviewed on motor world and anytime like something happened like we were called back into the studio to start you know getting ready for more announcements and making sure that things got updated in the show every single week through that period. But anything else, like there was no breaking news. It was just, we were covering races and doing packages. You know, it was a, it was a news magazine show. We weren't covering like breaking news much. So the McGrath thing, I mean, it happened. We recorded it. We sent the tapes back to tapes. Remember this is 2003. So we were still using actual tapes we sent them back to Atlanta and they made sure that you know, McGrath's video statement got put in the show the next week. Um, but we had a website too. It's just my, it was so long ago. My memory is kind of fuzzy about like how that went down. You know, we weren't, I wasn't like sitting in the audience, like updating motorworld.com or Twitter or through, Instagram. Through a, or something, yeah. Through yeah. a laptop, you know, it, I, I'd like to look back on it now and go, I didn't have that burden. That would seem like such a burden. That's why we went fast.com. I don't cover news. I don't want to. That does not appeal to me at all. And you guys are all doing such a good job of it already that I can just rely on you and Weege and Steve Mathis and everyone else to get, to get, keep me updated on breaking news because I don't want that burden. I don't want to compete, and I would just rather focus on something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's to see how that was back then. Like I read, I read the first issue of Racer X last night. Like Tony Blazer has it uploaded, so I I went through that and looking at all of that stuff to come from. You know, this year I was on a magazine deadline all the time, and now I'm not. I have a daily or hourly deadline of content. It seemed like it probably was pretty nice to have a couple days to work on something, to hash something out, to not be instantaneous to feed this like never satisfied machine, which is what we deal with now. But the cool thing about the content back then was like. It was written in a different way. It wasn't so, it was written because like guys wanted to write about it. It wasn't like, shit, we got to fill a quota now, you know? And I think that that's kind of something that I've noticed in these last few years is that everybody's become so much one way that we just have to keep pointing the same thing out over and over and over again, that it's kind of changed the entire way that everybody writes now. Would you agree with that? Is that for good or for bad, do you think? I think, um, I think that there is some like newsworthy capabilities of it like it seems like it's covered more like a legit sport now because back in the day it was just like buddies hanging out with buddies and kind of talking about what whatever was going on just like the little gossip stuff but never anything too gnarly but there was way more insight shared back then because it wasn't like you were going to get this instant reaction and then all these people were going to jump on message boards or social media comments and rip apart every little detail of every quote it was just like, hey, man, if you knew about this, you read the same magazine as your friend did when you bench raced at the track that weekend or at the motorcycle shop or whatever, you would talk about it then. And it seemed like guys were like way more forthcoming with details. And now everybody got kind of scared away from that. Like, don't tell too many secrets because it's going to be a problem. And we're slowly like starting to trace back to that. Like guys are becoming a little bit more open and they see like, hey, if I'm transparent, it gives people more to latch onto and explains the story much better. I just, there's just so much noise now, you know, there are so many outlets and there's so, it's so easy to get a message out. 
and that's a good thing and a bad thing. Um, that's why I, I don't put something out unless I have something important to say, mm-hmm. you know, and I've never come at it from a, from the perspective of, Oh, I just want to be at the races. Obviously we do it cause we love it and we love the sport. I don't ride a dirt bike anymore, but you know what? Howard Cosell never played football. So, you know, not every journalist played football. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go back to riding someday, I'm sure. But I stay in the sport because I just love it. I love dirt bikes. I love the the personalities. I love watching it. I like this better than I like watching football or baseball. Like this is what I choose to provide me entertainment now. And it's also what I love to report on. And I don't take on a story unless I have the time to fully tell it. And I, and I can do it in the timeline that I want to do it in. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty obvious in the Forkner story you did, because I think everybody knows, you know, like Mike and Julie are a little bit older for parents, but it explains like, Hey, this is how they got Austin. And this is how things happen. And this is why he's so important. And they're a fixture in his life. And all these things is because like, he's the miracle baby, you know, and your story that you did on him earlier this year was great. It shows like the whole family aspect and how much that they really gave into becoming the racers that he is now. And being a parent, it was easier to report on something like that because I, I understand having had two kids of my own, the processes that one has to go through to have kids, you know? And so talking from one parent to another makes that process easy. Um, but another thing is I'm not trying to be anyone's friend. I think there's, there seems to be a lot of that in, maybe this happens in other sports, but this is the only sport that I work in. So this is, this is just what I see. It's simply an observation. Um, is that so many people just want to be at the races that they forget that they're there to do a job and maybe they're trying to be friends with people too much and they forget that there's a job to be done. You know, do, do you know what I'm saying? Am yeah. I making any sense with this? No, I do because it's a mixed bag thing because there are certain times where I'm like, I'm, I might be a little overly friendly with a guy or I know too much, but I think that it comes kind of out of circumstance because when you're around these people, you know, 17 weeks in Supercross, 12 weeks outdoors, and then all of the test track time, like you do develop a friendship or a relationship or an understanding of what a guy's going through. So maybe you take off like the journalism side a little bit as just like a stone cold reporter and you're like, okay, hey, this is what's going on. But there are times, too, where it gets completely skewed, where you're just like, okay, hey, we have to all come here and do our job and report on what happened or watch what happened instead of just, like, propping everybody up and telling them how awesome they are at all times. Because there's even gear guys or mechanics or suspension techs or whoever that do the same thing. Like, that's when the rise of the man friend in the early 2000s, that, I mean, that was really prevalent. And that's not so much a phase anymore. It's just there's a bigger circle now instead of just one, like, hype man. It's a small industry, you know, and we're not we're not the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the New Yorker. It is advocacy media a little bit, you know, but I think people have grown a little upset that it, the promoters have limited the the number of credentials that they're giving out, and it's like, well, they they kind of need to, you know, you can't just let everybody in, you know, yeah, because it just it, then it just turns into a big hangout session. It's weird because, like, I was I was looking at the Racer X thing last night, and uh, there were so many motorcycle print magazines back then, 
And, you know, now we kind of have the same thing because there's so many, you know, YouTube channels or Instagram channels or whatever that all feel like they're vying for credentials or access and they maybe haven't earned the right yet. And so when you kind of look through the credential request and you're like, who, who is this person getting a pass? Well, back in the day, they might have been running a, a print magazine or a local newspaper or whatever because it was the same thing. But I do agree with you. Like there are some times where you're just like, hey, yeah, it, it is only so big. There are only so many people that can do this and you have to earn your way in. You can't just like show up and think you're going to get the golden ticket. So I sent you the Grand Prix motocross book, mm-hmm. Switching Gears. Yeah. I mean, why were you, you're, you're barely even 30 years old. Why were you so interested in this book? I, I, okay. So I read a lot of, um, old road racing books because that stuff is indexed the way that I wish motocross was. Uh, you know, there were so many people that follow those series and I'll just be honest. Like it seems so much more exciting back then the travel, like, you know, you had to change currency every time you went to another country or the language barrier was so hard. It wasn't, there wasn't telephones and internet and GPS, like, if you were going to do this, you really, really had to be dedicated to do it. It was a lifestyle thing. And so seeing how everybody experienced all these cultures, which is my favorite part of traveling internationally and seeing how the world is, these people did it. Like, Terry Pratt did that. You know, he committed his whole year to, I'm going to go everywhere and see everything and get the full experience. And I like, I like, I mean, you look at the cover and there's thousands of people deep watching a race and we wish that we could have that again. So I like to see like the the way things were and the way things are because it's just such a different sport. It's a completely different world from 1972 to now. I like looking back in time and you know seeing where we came from because it sort of explains what we have now. And I've really been thinking a lot about the discussion we had the other day about how you know history. Um, God, it's such a snapshot, you know, looking at, looking through this book. It's just gorgeous. The photographs um, were the record keepers. Mm-hmm. And if a book like this didn't exist, we wouldn't have known, we wouldn't have known what happened. Yeah. I mean, and that's why all of those cycle news archives that are online now are so important because you get to go back and see exactly what something was all those years ago. And I let's just be honest, our store, our sport hasn't archived things the right way. You know, there are thankfully like Davey and some other people at racer X have put together the, the vault. So there's a full racer X archive of results and everything like that. But we all thought that the internet was permanent and whatever you put on the internet is going to be there forever. And so much stuff of the last 20 years has just disappeared. We have to have stuff like these hard copy books to hold on to and be like, yo, this is the way it was because it's never going to go anywhere. One server change in all of your lifetime's work on a website has gone. I get bummed out about that too, a little bit, but and then I also remind myself that motocross, supercross is still a relatively young sport, and we're still figuring stuff like that out. I'm reading a book right now about baseball, about Lou Gehrig and um, Cal Ripken. It's called The Streak, and oddly enough, my neighbor wrote it. <laughs> um, he's written a lot of real books. He's a real writer. Um, a real writer. They didn't... <laughs> They didn't know back then, like, they weren't keeping track of stuff like that. Like, that was a big deal when Cal Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's streak. Mm-hmm. The president of the United States was in the ballpark. Um, there was a standing ovation. They had to stop the game. This was in 1995. Cal Ripken passed Lou Gehrig, uh, I think, 2,131 consecutive games. And in motocross, 
analogy, you know, that was when uh, Chad Reed did, you know, 228 starts or who did, who, who was it that did the most consecutive? It was well, Morocco and then it was, yeah. And so, and then and like then, the Ben LeMay thing and we just kind of glanced over that. This yeah. Yeah. Well, baseball, they weren't keeping track of stuff like that either. Like they had to go back and figure things out. Like, Oh, this dude, uh, Edwin Scott, I can't remember the name. Like we're talking like 1910, like, Oh shoot. He did a, a, a thousand straight games. They didn't know that it was decades later that they figured that stuff out. And by the time Lou Gehrig was, was racking up consecutive games and consecutive innings, they were, and that was in the 1920s and 1930s. This, meanwhile, professional baseball is like 50, 60 years old. You know, motocross is only in this country maybe 50, 50. years old. Yeah, DeCoster and Robert, those guys came over in 67. Um, Hallman came over in 66, and we're like showing motocross to us. And even so, then, it was still like a relatively new thing in Europe. It was maybe only yeah. 15 years old at the time there. Right. So. You know, us now trying to you know get these records straight, we're sort of on par with baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, which is arguably America's pastime. Now, some people say the NFL is, but you get my drift. You know, yeah. NFL, MLB, big big deals in this country. Motocross. You know, we're still figuring that stuff out, and I think that's okay as long as we're thinking about it, as long as we're trying. Yeah, and I and I think that's like a cool thing. It's something that I've taken pride in in these last few years of like, hey, I want to do things a, the certain way and the right way because it's going to be the archive for later on. Like even just the way that I lay out content or tag content on the website, it's all built to be an archive that if you wanted to learn something, you just click this one link and then you can access everything from this one race instead of having to like hunt and peck for it everywhere and maybe never find it. Yeah, it's weird. Some of this stuff, like how will we remember – the Lyme scandal, the Lyme incident from San Diego 2019. And that's the thing. You know? I don't think that, I think maybe five years from now, it might be like a blip on the radar, but most people won't remember because there's so much stuff that happens. Like if the GM sports thing, if everybody remembers what was going on in the early 2000s with this deal and it became this full lawsuit because, you know, Clear Channel had the rights to all the stadiums and the AMA was going to have to go to these other like racetracks or podunk venues or whatever like it was a big battle lockout thing and we're 20 years away from that now and it's still having ramifications on the sport with the fim being involved now but nobody thinks about that and those episodes of motor world are gone effectively gone like you can't find them online they're not archived i mean you could you could try to go up to bristol connecticut and try to find them um they might still be around in a warehouse somewhere in peachtree city georgia but that stuff breaks down you know mm-hmm. the oxides wear off those tapes and if you haven't noticed it's freaking hot in atlanta so <laughs> unless they're in an air-conditioned room you know they're not gonna last mm-hmm. and i think that's what makes the book so cool and i, I want to talk to you about the book because it's not your doing it's something that you just found so for people that don't know grand prix motocross the 1972 world championship season by terry pratt brett found a ton of copies of this book that Terry, who was a cycle news um, editor, ad executive. He wasn't, he he was an ad executive. So he was the one responsible for getting those win ads in the magazine through the eighties, nineties, two thousands. He would help make those happen. You know, he would call up the OEM on Monday morning and go, Hey, McGrath won again. You you want to run a win ad? Do you want you want two pages? You want one page, full color, four color? He would 
you know, bring in the ad, make sure it got processed correctly with the with the um, production department. He would make sure the printer got it right, so he just saw that process through. Um, he worked for Cycle News for 32 years. Before that gig, though, he was a contributor. He was a freelance writer for different motorcycle magazines. There were a lot of different motorcycle magazines back in the 60s and 70s, mostly in the 70s. And in 1972, he went to Europe. He sold his car in the States. He asked his sister to go down and watch his house in Long Beach. And he drifted around Europe with a guy named Volney Howard. And they just went around at the different races through the Iron Curtain, got an M60 pointed at his head for hours while they, you know, checked them out and made sure they were okay. Um, went to like a dozen different races that summer between uh, April and the Trophy Destinations in Belgium and took these gorgeous photographs with his Pentax on the Kodak chromes and sat on the stories and the photos for 35 years. And his friends. And if you're interested in knowing more about Terry's story, you can go to wewentfast.com, find the story, The Curious Life of Terry Pratt, and read all about that, about how he wound up writing this book in the first place. He just talked about it for decades. I'm going to write this book. I'm going to write this book. And he finally did it. And in, and he spent about a dozen years working on it. I spoke to some different people who worked with him at Cycle News. Um, talking about how, how funny it was, one woman said he <laughs> he delivered the manuscript in 2006, 2007 on typewritten pages, like physical, like, here's my book. And they're like, oh my God, this is, he typed this out. And they had to retype everything into a computer, oh my God. you know, so they could, they could oh publish God. it. But he literally had a typewriter sitting on his desk the entire, his entire career until like 2011 when cycle news uh, laid him off. <laughs> I mean, like, this is my guy and this is my, this is my kind of guy. Like I have a typewriter in my house. I don't use it, but I'm that kind of person. Yeah. I still love typewriters and cassette tapes and real books. <laughs> you know, I mean, I still enjoy the, the you know, new technology of today where I'm talking to you on a, on a smartphone, but I love physical things. Like, Terry was my guy. Like we would have been best friends had I got to know him before mm -hmm. he died. And so I missed this book when it got published. I didn't know it had happened. And I was in Davy Coombs's office. This was probably four years ago. And Davy has dozens Everything. and dozens and dozens of books just in his office alone. And I don't know, this one caught my eye, probably for the same reason it caught your eye. I'm like, wow, look at that crowd. That's cool. Old Husky. Who is that? You know, I um, I started flipping through it. And one photo in particular, page 100 and, nope, 225. It's Yaroslav Falta. He's on the sidelines, number 40, on a CZ. And these five little forest groms, these Belgian kids wearing their clogs and sandals with their knee-high socks, are staring up at him like he's jesus you know like superman and i'm like that's awesome davy's like yeah i love that photo too i said who you know what is this book who wrote it and so i just took note of it i think i took a i took a snapshot of it and kind of forgot about it and, and one day i was working on a project i'm like i want that fault of photo i want to use that in my project this project never happened by the way 
And I found that Terry had died. I got connected with his sister. And I said, do you have the photos from this book? And she's like, oh, no, his friends got, got everything. She's like, but if you're ever in Boron, California, I have, you know, I do have a couple boxes of things that you know, nobody seemed to want. I said, all right. She's like, you'll never be in Boron, California. Boron's out by Edward Air Force Base. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's not far from where Bob Hanna grew up riding dirt bikes in the Mojave Desert. It's on the way to nowhere. You would have no reason to ever go there, right? So... I said, all right, yeah. I mean, next time I'm in California, so it didn't happen, didn't happen. I make routine trips to California. Finally, this past June, I had to go out there for something related to the X Games. And I said, I'm coming to see you. And he's like, shut up. You're not, you're not coming to Boron, California. And I'm like, I'm coming. I'm coming up there. We meet on the side of the road in front of this, like, boarded up building i remember getting off the exit off like highway 58 or something and it said the destination is five miles on your left and i'm looking around (laughs) i can see a hundred miles in all directions and there's nothing nothing anywhere and there's like a c7 or whatever it was a boeing cargo plane like landing at edwards air force base i'm like wow there's nothing here and you drive up five miles on the down the road and like a little oasis Boron, California just appears out of nowhere. I go in this building with Terry's sister, and it's just restaurant equipment. It's just junk. There's nothing, right? I'm like, what? what is here? And she, she shows me this box. She's like, here's a box of stuff that nobody's, you know, nobody, nobody wanted. And I start going through it, and it's there's a lot of papers. Like, he saved all of his manuscripts, you know, interviews and stuff that he did with DeCoster, Robert, Willie Bauer. I'm like, this is cool. And there's a folder of negatives. And I kind of like took a mental note of those. I'm like, negatives, that's crazy. And then she takes me into the back and there's just boxes of this book. I'm like, this is the book. And she's like, yeah, yeah, no one really wanted to bother with the book. And so I, I like took as many as I could and I brought them back to Maryland with me where I live. And then I went through the box of stuff that I took from him. It's negatives from 1973, which was the year after when the book was written. So did he go the, back over? The book, he did. He went back over in 73 and 74. And these negatives had never been, had never been um, like published or anything. developed. No. Wow. And there was lots of papers. There was love letters from women that he met. There was uh, invoices, receipts. I'm just going through all this stuff. I'm like, there's like a cool paper trail on this guy's life. It, it's hard to write about a dead person, you know, because you can't talk to them. So I just thought this guy has like a cool, quirky story. Like, no, he wasn't to Coster. No, he, like nobody really needs to know about this guy. Right. But everybody needs to know about this guy. So it was just this quirky, cool story that nobody else was going to write. So I just took it upon myself to write the story about him. And that's when I decided, like, I'm going to sell the book when I publish his story. And I think it makes you appreciate the book so much more to know where it came from. And and so that's that's how I ended up with this book. And there's still some copies left in Boron. And his sister keeps, you know, as I run out, I, I had, I'm almost out now. I have, like, eight copies left as we do this interview. And by the time the interview publishes, I'll probably have none left. She sends me more. She keeps sending me more. Um, there's some on the way right now, in fact. And um, 
I think there's only a couple hundred books left, and when they're gone, they're it's gone. Over. That's it. It's over with. So I mean, this is like a motocross textbook, you know. If we were to teach a college course on motocross history, you know, in Anton and Mr. Anton and Mr. Smith's class, this would be required reading. And like the thing of it is, we do this stuff like this. That was kind of what allured me to it so much is that this guy basically lived like what is my dream? Like to go do a full season in Europe, and then just you just travel. You know, you just hang out. You go see the different stuff. You go to the different workshops. I mean, there's photos of every what would be considered a factory bike back then. And a factory bike then was just so archaic. You know, the the opening photo for anybody that buys the book or doesn't is the CZ mechanics that had come over from like behind the Iron Curtain and are just like trying to get this bike ready for the first race. And what they have is, I mean, it's the most essential tools ever for something that we look back later on and we're just like, this is the baddest ass thing ever. And at the time, I'm sure it was cool, but it was just so poorly developed you know and, and oh, that, yeah. that's what makes ex- that stuff so sick to me it explains why they dnf so much these guys were experimenting i mean i'll stop short of saying they didn't know what they were doing of course they knew what they were doing but they they were just trying anything titanium frames oh we'll just shave some weight off this and you know this is before way before our time no but it's cool to read a- barely any engineering yeah. just trying things Will this work? Nope. Okay, we blew up last week and we had two DNFs. Let's try this instead. You know, it's just so cool. I mean, here's an excerpt from the book you were just talking about the CZ mechanics. Uh, this is from the Grand Prix of Spain uh, in April 1972, 250 class. During one of the morning practice sessions, when the Japanese and Swedes were re- preparing their machines with racks of shiny tools and organized bins full of spares, the Russian riders and Czechoslovakian mechanics of the CZ team rolled into the pits. Their battleship gray vehicles were still grimy from the arduous trip across the eastern across Eastern Europe, and behind the doors was a tangle of spare wheels, engines, and roadway ri- roadway riders. At first glance, the racing machines looked like worn-out veterans that had belonged to a junior rider on unemployment. But actually, the CZs had special frames and lightened engines, and some were five-speed models, but they looked like hell. The bulky, hand-built alloy gas tanks were feather-light, but they gave the bikes an aura of combines. But the Z's ran, and the Russians rode them like the wind across the steps. I mean... That writing, that like, writing alone was like, yeah, yes, that's like the writing real, matches like, writing. the photos. The photos are so detail rich, and the writing matches it. I mean, Terry was—he just paid attention to what was going on. It was—it's awesome. It's such an awesome read. So, like, the thing that got me so interested in vintage at all, like, I mean, it's easy to get all caught up in the modern day stuff because I look at, like, the factory bikes that are in the pit area every weekend, and I think they're badass because, you know, all of the work stuff that's on them and how detailed they are, but how adventurous it had to be. I mean, you had to be brave to leave Russia at that time or the Soviet Union and venture out across this whole other part of the continent that you really can't go to and you're not welcome in, and there's this tension from the Cold War and everything else that's gone on. So for the for the Russian mechanics and the Soviets, like that was amazing to me that they took on that adventure and was like, yeah, we're going to do this. We have to prove our country's worth in this one thing that really, in the grand scheme of things, matters to nothing. Like we're going to make this great motorcycle. What's it really going to do? You know, it's not going to change Russian history. But the way Terry wrote about that stuff is so amazing. So you know Chris Carter from Motion Pro. 
I know that name. Okay, Chris Carter, if you ever get the chance to go to like Hangtown, you need to call Chris and go ask to see his his collection. He has a Joe Robert jersey from when Robert came over for the very first time in the United States and did like the California tour. And he only had one Martini jersey. And that's like, I think Martini is the coolest brand ever to me because of how much racing that they've sponsored. So anytime I can get like Martini liquor, I always do because they're, you know, they've sponsored every sort of racing imaginable. So Chris is a little kid and he asked Robert like the original, can I get your jersey? question back in the 60s and Robert's like hey this is the only one I have I can't give it to you but Chris follows the whole California leg of the tour and at the last race Robert remembers him and gives him the jersey and it's framed and to see Chris have something like that like this little memento of this time gone by I'm like that is why I want to collect so much stuff and so to see how all that stuff is like that's what really got me interested in the 70s eras because I mean, that's motorcycle racing at its coolest to me. That's when McQueen is into it. And, you know, everybody wants to be a motorcycle rider after day in the dirt or after on any Sunday. So the book thing is, is amazing though, because of how well this is archived, you know, this is written about like, it's the grand tour. There's nothing else that would ever probably be comparable to this. Um, Especially now it would be so hard to write the same thing, but for you to read this, like what were some stick out points when you first started scrolling through it, and I'll tell you mine. What stuck out to me reading the book? Yeah. It was the photographs at first. You know, I didn't, I didn't really get into the words right away. I mean, like, opening up to page 57, um, Joel Robert's in the middle of the podium, and there's men in suits around, and they're shaking hands, and, you know, there's this all this pomp and circumstance, and there's this boy in the background with this astonished look on his face, and he's got, he's wearing a button-down shirt with a tie tucked into a sweater. At a motocross you know? race. Yeah, at a motocross race. Now, um, you read about the Czechoslovakian GP. That was the one where they were wandering around town with the Czech, with the interpreter, the 18-year-old college student. Um, like, the town made a big deal out of it. Like, this was a big deal to have a motocross race in your town. And it really shows in these photos, like, this is what people came and did. Like, this this was your choice. You know, when an event like this came to town, this was a, what you went and did. So I really like to look, look around beyond the subject matter of the photo, which is DeCoster or... Uh, Billy Clements or Hawken Anderson or Willie Bauer and look in the background. I think that's what interests me almost more than the, than the, than the writers. I'm, I like to look at the people and, and look what they're, look at what they're doing. I like to look at the track. Like what, how wide was the track? What do I see? I mean, page 80 and 81, it's, um, it's Adolf Weil and Ben Auberg and they're racing on what looks like, cause the photos are all black and white, by the way. It looks like they're riding in a hayfield because that's grass on either side of them. And there's one lane <laughs> that makes up the torn up track. And the rest of it's just grass. Um, turning the page to 82 and 83, you know, you look in the background and see these farms and the martini banners, you know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm doing a very good job of describing this, but, you know, you look in the pits and, and they're just bikes are torn apart in the dirt and and terry did a really good job of taking photographs of all the different teams and what the engines looked like and what the bikes look like um 
what the pipes look like and the, the, the calipers and the foot pegs. And he was very into the machinery. Um, he went to the, the Mako factory. He went to the Husqvarna factory and in shot photos in there. So you can get a look at, at what it, what their production line looked like. Um, he's got photos of Willie Bauer, like working on his own bike in the Mako factory. I mean, how cool is that? That's what drew me into the book. Not the writing at first, even though I am a writer. Mm-hmm. And then once I'd kind of absorbed a lot of the photos, then I went back and started reading it. And I'm still reading it. And that's this. I've been getting that exact feedback back from people who bought the book. They're like, they just keep going back to it. They, they keep picking it up. Have you ever read a, a book or a magazine? You flip through it a little bit and you throw it to the side and you never pick it up again. Oh, yeah, all the time. I've been getting, I, I keep picking this book up and people keep telling me, like, I keep picking the book up. Like, I, I, it doesn't wind up in a box somewhere and forgotten about. Like, I keep going back to it and looking at it. Like, it's so much fun to keep flipping through. Oh, no, this has become, like, ever since you sent it to me, it's the centerpiece of our coffee table now. Like, I've looked at it all the time because it's stuff like this that kind of reinforces my passion for the sport is like, okay, hey, this is how it was. Like, take inspiration from this. Remember why you like it. This is, this is cool shit. The um, the thing about and the photo, it smells good. It smells good, yeah. It looks good. <laughs> um, it's a conversation piece. But the cool thing about it, I think, is that you know at this time in you know seventy two, DeCoster is, I mean, he's not the man that we know now, but he's renowned. He's world renowned. He everyone knows who he is if you follow motorcycle sport. He's traveled the world at this point. He is the guy, and just how. All these photos of Roger just hanging out, just relaxed, smiling, and then how stylish he is on the bike, you know, cross-ups and just how precise he was. In an era where it looked like everybody was a little, maybe at times, cobbled together, Roger looked buttoned down at all times. He did, yeah. He was so stylish, so classy looking. And then there's Robert, who in every photo where he's not racing has a cigarette or a stogie hanging out of his mouth. Yeah. (laughs) The Robert story of like him chasing the guy into the crowd after they crash is hilarious because it's like, why why would you do that? Just get back on the bike and finish the race. But then you have, you have other. Let's read that. Let's, let's read that. I got it. This is, this is the, uh, also Grand Prix of Spain, April 9th, 1972. Sylvan Gabor's, just as he drew close to leading. Husky rider Gaston Rahir, I might be butchering that name, clipped a hay bale that had been moved between races and went sprawling on his back in the infield. Robert smacked the fallen bike and did a flying W over the handlebars. Robert got up in a rage and chased Rahir into the crowd where he popped him in the mouth before they were separated by the turn marshals. Gaston started Joel's bike for him and then rejoined the fray while Robert rode sullenly back to the pits using his left hand on the throttle. <laughs> Opening round. Opening round. That's how Started his bike for him. Yeah, he catches one in the mouth and then is probably terrified of Robert and then starts the bike for him. But then Robert's championship starts off with, yeah, you socked some guy in the face and then rode back to the pits because you probably broke your hand. I mean, how awesome is that? Yeah, the Robert thing of the beer drinking and the cigarettes and stuff is funny because you can't, that could never happen now. Like when RV or Cooper Webb, like jokingly puts a cigarette in their mouth, everybody just thinks it's hilarious, but like no Robert really smoked. Like he would probably smoke and ride at the same time if he could have. Yeah. He probably did. But yeah, there's just, there's stuff like that, that when you flip through it, you're just like, wow, this was so cool. 
And when I read all those road racing books of like MotoGP or Formula One, the thing about it is to me, like I, I look at it and I think, would I, would I want to follow this sport? Would I love it as much as I love it now because it is so safe now? If I knew that I was going to maybe lose a lot of friends in a year, like would I like racing the same way that I do? Because people got killed all the time. And that wasn't the case in motocross, but there was still like a pretty high risk factor to it. And it was a pretty brutal thing. It was like the modern day gladiators of the time. And that's the other thing that really catches my interest on it is like, you had to be badass to do this. This wasn't just something that you could pick up and do on the weekend. If you did it, you were committed to it. Right. Um, how has feedback on this book been? Because it's so much, it's so out there for the modern times. Like there's almost nothing that could be co- uh, copied now, but at the same time too, it's like, kind of nice to see how simple things were back then. Well, so it's a $40 book. It's a heavy book. It's two and a half pounds, even though it's soft cover. It's nine by 12 inches. Um, I thought I would get nobody else. Like in the U.S., I can ship it media mail and it's cheap. It's like five bucks, you know, to, almost to ship it almost anywhere in the United States. I'm media mail is slow boat, you know, um, I can't do that internationally. And I thought no one's going to spend 30 to $35 in shipping to buy this book. No, I've had dozens of international orders, New Zealand, West Australia, Sydney, Tasmania, South Africa, all over Europe. Uh, I think I shipped one to, to Guam. I'm like, who would, they, they, they want it though. They're hungry for it because it just disappeared one day. He died. Cycle News stopped selling it. I think a couple of years before because they laid him off. It was his book. I think he took it with him and he was trying to sell it online. He died. His entire motorcycle collection gets sold off to, to friends and collectors and people who knew him. He had a lot of bikes, a lot of great bikes. Um, but the book got left behind. Nobody wanted to deal with the book or maybe they didn't know about it. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a, I went through hell trying to get these books back here and, and, you know, it, it was, it was a, it was a burden, but I'm like, I just felt responsible. I felt like I needed to do it and I wanted to do it because I felt like people needed to, to get this book or have the opportunity to. And so I was willing to take the financial risk of, you know, flying out there and getting it back. And, um, it was a gamble, but it it, it is, it's paid off in feedback because yeah, people are, are buying it and people are spending, you know, as much on the book as they are in shipping to get it to all these different countries, which that that's been cool alone. And they send me emails like the book arrived. I love it. I can't put it down. I keep going back to it. It's been sitting in my desk and I keep, you know, putting off work to read this book. And, um, people are going back to their childhood, you know, Jeff Mayer from MX large. I sent him a copy of the book cause I ran out at first, like right away. I ran out after the story got posted and Jeff's like, oh, mate, I wanted one of those books. I'm like, I'll, I'll send you one when I get more in stock. And I did. And it just arrived this week. And he's like, this takes me back to being a kid because his first race was in 1971. So like, this just reminds me of being a kid again. Um, David Bailey was one of the, f- the, the, he was the very first person I saw after I picked up the first round of books because I drove down to Temecula after I left Boron. Mm-hmm. Cause I was working on something with him and I opened up my trunk. I'm like, dude, look at this. And he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> if you see like all these 
these 10 boxes of books in the trunk of the rental car and I handed him a copy and he's like, ah, oh, cause this was his childhood too. Mm-hmm. 1971, 1972. That's when he hooked up with Gary Bailey and started traveling around the country, riding bull tacos and doing schools. You know, yeah. And, and doing schools and going to the, the trans am trans am races in the fall with, with Gary and seeing these guys, he's like, Holy cow. I feel like a kid again reading this book. So yeah, if you're, if you're in your fifties, like this is your childhood right here. This is what you grew up worshiping as a kid out here on the edge. Failure is no option here. You don't compromise off road on road on the track off the grid. Sunstar sprockets and brake discs come installed in more motorcycles and all-terrain vehicles than any other in the world, period. The engineers who design your bike trust and spec Sunstar for the same reason you should. Because here, on the edge, failure is no option. Sunstar, number one in sprockets and brake discs. Hey everyone, it's Marvin Miskin from the Red Bull KTM Racing Team. Right now, KTM is making it easier than ever to get out and ride. Head to your local KTM Autorized dealer to take advantage of limited time offer on qualified dirt, street, adventure, and naked models, or check out KTM.com to learn more today. Hi, this is 250 Supercross Champion Chase Sexton of the Geico Hana team. To get the most performance out of your motocross bike, make sure you're using the Yoshimura exhaust systems. Visit Yosh at yoshimura-rd.com to see their wide line of slip-ons and complete systems for your bike today. Now enjoy the Swap Moto Live Kickstart podcast. Riders like Justin Cooper, Dylan Ferrandis, Eli Tomac, Adam Entingnap, Josh Hansen, and more partner with Works Chassis Lab for engine mounts and other special parts to add comfort to and enhance the handling characteristics of their bikes. With championships and race wins to prove it, Works Chassis Lab Parts provides the winning edge. Visit WorksChassisLab.com for more information. In 2013, 6D Helmets forever changed the way we think about motorcycle safety helmets. With its patented omnidirectional suspension system to help absorb rotational impacts, the original ATR1 helmet swept through the industry and was received with open arms by riders and racers alike. The new 6D ATR2 and ATR2U are even better than the original and carry a limited three-year warranty and a unique technology that allows the helmet to be rebuilt after most crashes. Visit 6dhelmets.com for more info. Hey, it's Will Hahn, team manager of the Monster Energy Star Racing Yamaha team. Works Connection has been building the best aluminum parts in motocross for over 30 years. From the awesome Pro Launch Start device to their original axle blocks. Works Connection parts are designed and produced in California, and we are proud to use them on our factory race bikes in Supercross and Motocross. Check them out at worksconnection.com. Mm-hmm. The, um, the thing that just like strikes me about it so much is how everything is there. Like his photographs, it's it would be easy to just put like one, two things to a photo and just show the action and the glitz and the glamour, but like the portraits the pit stuff just the captions that fed it to it there are so many words in this book like this thing had this would be a lifetime project to get done because it's thousands and thousands and thousands of words it shows in the book that it took him three and a half decades to do Mm -hmm. like that comes through that is very evident that this was not rushed you know he wasn't rushing to meet a deadline that he took his time doing this and everyone i talked to that was even a peripheral part of the making of it, you know, 
really talked about like how much care he put into every caption, every photo he chose, every word he wrote. It was all, everything was what happened on purpose. And that really, really shows inside the book. Okay. It's holiday season. I mean, we're at the tail end of November right now. Christmas is coming up and you have a limited stock. So if people want to get this thing, what do they need to do? Uh, we went fast.com slash shop. If you see that the inventory drops to zero, just go ahead and back order it. I will get more. Um, I wouldn't sleep on it because yeah, there is a, a, a limited run. Um, there's only so many of these books still sitting in Boron and, um, I, I will not have any more left, um, in the next few months, I'm sure. Um, but right now, this morning, I just launched a, a, um, special, Going back to those negatives I found from the 1973 season, I finally finished scanning all of them, and they're they're taken by the same person who gave us this the gift of this book. Um, they're gorgeous photos of the 1973 season, and I made uh, a little photo booklet. It's six by six inches, so it's it's small. It's like a little desktop thing of uh, 50 of my favorite photographs from that collection of scanned photos. Um, and I'm giving the booklets away on orders of $100 or more. And I only made 20 booklets. Oh, wow. So that just launched today. Um, these little booklets are so cool. I used a, a, an online photo service that like, can tap into an Instagram account or you can just upload photos on your own. And, um, yeah, Brad Lackey's rookie season. Roger DeCoster battling Willie Bauer for his third world championship. There's a photo of Yamaha engineers sitting on Brad Lackey's Kawasaki. It's so it's so funny some of these some of these photographs, you know, just things that you would never see today. Like some candid photos of Lackey sitting in a stream trying to cool off after a hot race. What the Suzuki pits look like. I mean, so so, so ghetto by today's standards, right? But that's what, you know, factory that's what it was, yeah. That's what it was back then. Um just some random photos of dudes back in the pack. Um, I'm looking at this awesome photo of DeCoster sitting on Lackey's number 38 Kawasaki um, bike. You know, can you imagine can Eli Tomac yeah, wandering to over to Cooper KDM. Webb? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. gonna sit. Can I sit on that bike? I'm gonna check it I out. Kawasaki was new back then. They were still like trying to figure it out. They yeah. did. This was their first year in the 500 class. Um. Got this photo of the Japanese Yamaha engineer sitting on a Kawasaki and then grinning at Terry's camera. You know, there's a photo in the in the '72 book that's really interesting, and it's that Suzuki the Suzuki tech from Japan. And you know, he's in the Suzuki coveralls working on the bike, and you're like, bro, this guy left Japan and moved to Europe where he probably knew nothing and probably had nothing, and he was just living the dream. And the stuff that people just took those risks and just did things, and it had to be so difficult to do that. And that, like, yeah. that's the cool thing about what is that era because these guys didn't know if it was going to work out or not. They just did it because they wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I made a little uh, 50-page booklet of, of photographs and um, giving them away with, with orders of $100 or more. And I have lots of I – have, I have the Terry Pratt book for sale. I have lots of different T-shirts. I have a licensing deal with Evil Knievel, so I have some cool Evil Knievel Okay, we um, got to talk about shirt that. up there. Um, you are you're in your forties, late thirties. I I am forty. Yes. Okay. How thanks influ- for reminding me. Sorry, I'm 29, so 
Um, Shout out. How influential was Evil Knievel to you? Because you were probably, he was probably at the tail end of his, you know, career when you're a kid. But Evil, like, if you look even back into the, like, late 90s, early 2000s, like, my God, Evil was still heralded as this icon, even though he was a lunatic. Yeah, I mean, I remember doing a report on Evil Knievel in Mr. Quiring's seventh grade English class. I don't know what Evil Knievel had to do with English, and I don't remember why we would would have been doing reports <laughs> in the first place. But I remember showing it, a video that I'd spliced together of Evil's famous jumps and like giving a presentation on what a badass he was, basically. In seventh grade. Um, yeah, in seventh grade. And he was long done jumping by the time I was in seventh grade, but it was still like you know, he was still iconic, you know, he's still, he's that like mythical superhero figure, you know, to the kids today who may or may not have, ex- may or may not have existed. You know, he's just like this f- almost folklorish tale. I mean, he um, took a baseball bat to a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you want to know more about that stuff, like, like his, uh, not so publicized life. You could read Lee Montville's um, book about Evil Knievel, which was written about eight or nine years ago. That was really fascinating. Um, but yeah, okay. Evil Knievel is just—he's a badass on a, on a motorcycle, but not that great of a rider, you know. Let's really scary. He, he, yeah, it's yeah, pretty sketchy. But what he was willing to do, yeah, that'll never be—you know—as much as we try to duplicate and replicate evil can evil stunts like when travis not to discount travis at all dude's a stud but like when he jumped you know the fountains for his stunt on a history channel Mm -hmm. it just doesn't have the same effect because travis is a really really good dirt bike rider really good motorcycle rider very talented technology is not even close to what it was then he just made it look so easy it just is like oh okay Mm-hmm. You know, 50 years ago on that technology and evil just being totally sketchy. And probably drunk. Probably got a good buzz going. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, you, you you just can't, you can't, what I'm getting at is you, you can't even it can compare. never be duplicated. No. It can never be duplicated. You cannot compare these. It's like, it's like trying to say like, oh, Bob Hanna would have waxed everyone today. Like you just, you can't make those comparisons. No. I, I don't even try to do that. It's not worth it. You know, like, oh, Jordan and LeBron. No, it's just, you you just can't do that. It's fun to talk about, I guess, but you can never, nobody can ever come up with a satisfying answer to that argument. Mm -hmm. That's impossible. Okay. If someone told like 23 year old Brett, like, hey, you know, you're doing the motor world thing right now and you're going through this, but in 15, 20 years, like you are going to be, you're going to own trademarks to Evil Knievel merchandise and you're going to have this book that is there's only so many copies of it but it's this perfect portrait of what was going on in the 70s is that what you intended on or is that just kind of what fate wound up being well i subscribe to the you know ricky carmichael school of hard work which is you know you make your own luck and the harder you work the luckier you get i'm doing exactly what i wanted to do when i was 10, 15, 20, I think, which is tell stories. That's what I wanted to do. Could I have told you I'd be doing exactly this? No. So going back to the beginning of our conversation, I wanted to be the editor of a magazine. I wanted to work in motorcycle magazines so much that in eighth grade, I plagiarized a Jody Weisel column and passed it off in Mrs. Hanjo's English class as my paper. She gave me an A, so... (laughs) Shout out to Jody. Shout out to jo- 
Jody. But yes, um, that I was plagiarizing. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed to say that. Plagiarizing motocross columns, you know, because that's what I wanted to do. Like, that's who I aligned myself with, mm-hmm. you know, dirt bike riders. So even when I was producing television shows for, for you know, Moto World and for Chet Burke's Productions, I maintained a writing career on the side. I would write the occasional article for Davey, Racer X, Jimmy Lewis at Dirt Rider, Ken Fought at Dirt Rider, Chris Dennison at Dirt Rider, Pete Peterson at Dirt Rider. Dirt Rider had a lot of editors there in the last 15 years. But I was, was, you know, Cycle News. um, I was writing for a lot of different magazines, you know, Moonlighting, you know, literally at night, after hours, on weekends. I'd be on the airplane, you know, coming home from, from the Nationals, you know, typing out, you know, articles, transcribing the interviews, um, because I knew like someday I'm going to not produce television shows anymore. I want, I still want to be a writer. Like I held on to that dream, even though it's like the most unlucrative thing you could ever do. It's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do. It's not, it's not exactly how I pictured it, you know, but I love it, you know. The reason I'm doing it the way I'm doing it is because all those magazines that I used to write for are gone. Dirt Rider's gone. Ra- uh, um, sorry, not Racer X. Um, Motorcyclist is gone. Um, Transworld is gone, even though I never wrote for you guys. You know, so many titles are, are gone. And I realized I got to own my own stuff. I need to start writing for myself because there's not going to be anyone left. Mm-hmm. Okay, that brings me to an interesting point. How um, you've proved that it, this is a lucrative, like you can make a career out of doing one-off stories here and there, selling. No, them this off. is un, this is unlucrative. <laughs> but I mean, you're, you know, you're paying the bills. You got the power bills are on. You have kids. Like you have something going on that you've figured out. Like, hey, I have to have a bunch of different channels of how I'm going to push my content out. You know, you still contribute to different people. You have your website. You have these things. Like, is it still lucrative to? sell this book to sell t-shirts to sell merch to run an instagram channel like the the media model is changing so much and it doesn't seem like anybody knows exactly where it's going to go so you just have to try everything right yes um i don't have the numbers to get advertising so i don't even i don't even try and it's probably Um, better that way actually because then you don't have to write to an agenda i think so um i had no I don't want to say desire. I had no intentions of ever like becoming a t-shirt salesman. Like last night, late, late at night, I'm folding t-shirts because I don't go through a print on demand company. I handle all my t-shirt sales myself. I order them. I know exactly where they're coming from in Atlanta. You know, I've been to that shop. I know what it looks like. I get the t-shirts. I inspect everyone. I fold everyone. I ship every single one. I print the labels. I do everything myself because I want to, you know, just like my articles, I wouldn't farm out my article to someone else. You know, I, I handle it myself. And so the, the, the merchandise has to be the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but so when I started the Instagram account, We Went Fast, I built an audience that is like me. They like what I like. And when I had an audience, I'm like, wow, I have an audience of people that, that they think like me. They want to see the same things that I do. I had a, a, an audience to sell things to. And that that. That was sort of by accident, but now looking back on it, I'd like to think that it that it wasn't, you know. Mm-hmm. 
it's it's really weird how how this happened, but I realized like, oh shoot, yeah, if I'm gonna write for myself, I've got to, I can't do this for free. Yeah, you have to you have know? something for it. Yeah, I, yeah, I have to have something for it. Um, but I'm not gonna charge people for the for the content because, I mean, let's be realistic. There's so much it's content pretty, out there anyway. Yeah, right. It's pretty good, but nobody's gonna pay for it. No one's gonna pay me five dollars for an article or. You know, a hundred dollars for a subscription. I do have a Patreon account, and and there are enough people out there, you know, who like what I do so much that they're willing to pay three bucks a month or ten bucks a month for it, and they get they get free stuff. You know, I send them swag, I send them stickers. Uh, the people who pay me ten dollars a month, they get you know they get a free T-shirt and other swag, and I hook them up with with other things, and they get exclusive content from my vault of memorabilia and videos um, that I choose to keep private. But, you know, those are my super fans, if you will. You know, those are the people who like it so much that they're willing to pay for it. But WeWentFast.com is completely free, you know, and I, I intend to keep it that way for as, for as long as I keep the site alive and keep doing it. Um, but I realized that I'm not going to go the advertising route because I don't want to be influenced by anyone. I don't want to, I don't want my site to have like this advertising banners all over it. I want to keep it clean. And, um, Within my family, my wife is a designer. I have enough of, uh, um, I have enough resources where I can, you know, make really cool merchandise that I think people will want. Mm-hmm. Okay. With that being said, are you surprised by the two ways that your model is now? A that it is there's no print hard product to it at all times, and that it's it's never like at a consistent schedule. It's just kind of this endless. You know, we'll get to it when we get to it. When I have the passion or, you know, when I get the time to work on some stuff like you're working on now with that Ricky Carmichael story. So A, are you surprised at the way that people consume content? And then B, are you surprised at the way that there are so many people that want to see old stuff instead of just being so caught up in the here and now they want to look back at, you know, the sixties, seventies, eighties, the nineties. I am surprised that, well, what I've learned, I'm not an analytics guru at all, but if something's well done, like Terry's book, it, it's so well done that you want to consume it because there we are bombarded with things. Of people want our attention, clickbait. It's everywhere. It is. It is like you can reach anyone now. Yet it's really hard to reach people. Right? It's hard to get people to stop and pause and want to take something in. And I and I get that too. People are like, oh man, what you know, release audio versions of your stories because I don't have time to sit and I don't have a half hour to sit and read your story. And I do. Every once in a while I release a like a podcast version of the stories where I read the story to you. Um, and I gotta get caught up on those in fact. But people will stop and listen or read something that's worth their time. So that's why I don't get caught up in making sure I have a new story every day, every week, or even every month. I posted a story yesterday called The Old Man in the Clay about the um, the man, the family who owns all the land where the test track, the Supercross test tracks sit. That's the first story I published in six weeks. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I can. I can't go six weeks without publishing. I need like six hours. Well, no, because you're. <laughs> but because we're in a totally you're, you're different running. thing, and like that's that. I'm not like that's not a knock at all. Like in a little bit of a way, I'm envious of you that you can really like sit down and hone in stuff because I love the rapid fire approach. I like the ADD. Like, hey, we got to get something on the side all the time. But I really appreciate when I can sit down and take a couple days to do something, and you have that luxury. I guess you should set a goal for yourself to. 
you know, we're every quarter right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every, on this week's episode, figuring out Anton's life. This is a work in Set progress. Set a goal for yourself yeah. for every quarter. You know, I'm going to, you know, I like I do a content budget. These are the stories that I want to write this year or next mm. year. And I tried and I have, I have stories that, you know, I'm not going to tell you those right now, but I, I, I know almost every story that will be written in 2020. I already know that. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about them for, for some of them years. Like it's been like on this anniversary, I'm going to write this story and I can wait. Cause that story is not going to, it's not going to go anywhere, and it's not like in, yeah. it's your vision to it. So it's not like anybody else is going to beat you to the punch. It's not like this is some world championship interview you have to do right now with a guy that everybody is clamoring for his attention. You go off the beaten path and show those behind-the-scenes things of like, hey, this is a little element that makes Moto what it is. Exactly. And if you talk about beating to the punch. I never get worried about um, the race. Like people stealing my stories or um, I'm – and I'm always I'm always willing to share. I give away more stories than you did I this for me write. this week. Yeah, yeah. I gave you a story idea. I gave a story idea to a guy a couple weeks ago. It has nothing to do with motocross. How do I tell this story? Um, I noticed that Katy Perry wrote a song called Harley's in Hawaii. Okay. I listen to Katy Perry's music. Sorry, not sorry. Oh, that's fine. Everybody's got their. <laughs> I'm mind. like Har- I'm like, Harley's in Hawaii. That's interesting. So I listen to the song. She's singing about Harley's. Harley is in, in the title of the song. The music video, she rides a Harley. Like, she legitimately rode a Harley. She went and got a street bike license. To, to, so she knew how to ride a bike. And the first day she rides on a real public road is for the music video. I'm like, that's pretty cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it didn't, it didn't seem like this was a stunt. But I was still curious. How much did Harley pay for that? that exposure like that couldn't have been free right she has a hundred million twitter followers she has 90 million instagram followers she is 35 million youtube subscribers like she's a big deal like love her or hate her she's a big deal a huge deal yeah so i just emailed the guy that i know whose books you have probably read mark gardner and i said yep. this story is for you buddy like you write this one i want to know like what is the story behind how the hell did harley become that ingrained in a Katy Perry song. And he's like, really? Like you're giving me the story idea. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I like, I don't have time to, to write it. I think you would do a better job. He got it in the New York times, the that's, New York that's times. Huge. Yeah, that's huge. That's massive. And he got it in Revzilla, which is a client of mine. That was my intention. Like that's where I would have taken the story to, to Revzilla's common tread blog. Mm-hmm. I don't have contacts. So he did way more with the story than I could have. And I was so proud of him. And it was a huge week financially for him, you know, because you get paid when you work right for the New York Times big time. Yeah. So, I mean, that was awesome for him. And I was, I was so happy to, to see that. But so what I'm getting at is I'm a, I'm a high tide floats all boats, whatever that cliche is kind of guy. I mean, I think we need to be sharing more ideas as an industry, even though we are small, you know, I think we need to be more open source and sharing with one another and just congratulating one another and not, you know, no, these are my story ideas or no, don't you go start a podcast too. That's, that's not right. I'm, you know, I'm the only one who can, who can, who can do be that. doing this. Yeah. yeah. I want, I want, I want more people to be doing what I'm doing. 
I don't know where the next great writer is. You know, Davy Coombs and I had this conversation uh, some months back, like who's replacing us? Because mm-hmm. we're getting older, you know, yeah. and I don't see anybody coming up. I've mentored uh, young writers, young photographers, but I just don't see anyone who really wants to do what we're doing. There's yeah. a lot of photographers. There's a lot of everybody wants to be a videography, but no one wants to write. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and I'm with you on that because that's that's why I got my job with Don. I could write. I couldn't take photos. I couldn't do video. I still can't do video, arguably, but photos. I figured it out because I'm so inspired by the images that I saw growing up from Don and Garth and and Cudby and Joe Bonnell and all those guys. So like that's the thing. We have to find those guys that are. You know, the 17, 18, 19-year-old kids right now that are just so enamored with it. And we have to give them their chance to become the continue on of what we're doing. And I agree with you, too. Like, we do need to share more stuff. Everybody thinks that this whole racing thing is competitive. But, like, me and Mathis, me and Wygant, me and you, me and Guy B, like, everybody's cool. You know, when you are at the races, it's it's just a cool hangout thing. I mean, yeah, there is some race for advertising dollars and page views and things like that. But at the same time... We do share quite a bit of information with each other or ideas or news or whatever. And it, it's cool. That's something that in motocross you're not going to see copied through other sports. You know, I I always did think it was cool, though, that like when you look back at old Major League Baseball stuff, that they would watch the game and then they would all get drunk at the same bar together and write the same reports. I thought that was badass. <laughs> That's like I know. Dream. Norman Mailer and all those guys. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so I know you got to get ready to wrap this up because you got – to get your kid from school and everything like that. Um, couple more quick questions. In seeing this book now, does it give you more faith that although the print model is dying, if you put out a quality product, somebody will buy it? Yes, but it's got to be really good. Like make it Creative. worth people's time. Mm-hmm. I said this on a different podcast. Like I don't pay much attention to my analytics. Not because I don't think they're important, because I just don't care. You know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to fill up your inbox or your feed just because I feel like I have to post all the time. If I have something to say or if I think something's worth sharing, that's when I share it. So the same with like a print product or, or, a, or, or an article that gets posted online, it's got to be good. Like if I'm only writing for myself, I'm not writing for you. I'm not writing for my neighbor. I'm not writing, you know, for, you know, that fan in Iowa. I'm writing it for myself. And if I don't believe in it, then I'm not going to do it. I get a lot of pitches from people that, you know, oh, you should write a story on this. And I'm like, if I'm not, you know, feeling it, I'm just not going to do it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not worth it. And I don't want to waste people's time. Okay. Last question. As you just said, the Katy Perry thing, and if you look at this book, like you've seen as a guy that's been involved in the industry, you've seen through all the years how just close enough motorcycling, motocross in specifics, but motorcycling as a whole, gets to becoming like that mainstream acceptance. You know, it's been on Jay Leno because Jay's a motorcycle fan and stuff like that. You look at all the things that have happened. You look now where there are so many streetwear companies and hip-hop artists and stuff that take inspiration from motocross, like Migos for their tour with Drake a couple years ago, their whole outfits were cut and sewed motocross gear together. Travis Scott has motorcycles in a ton of his videos. Kanye had that, all that stuff, Supreme, the Honda thing. I mean, it's huge. 
do you ever see us becoming fully accepted in that way or no? And do we need to just accept like, hey, we are what we are and let's just enjoy the damn thing for what it is? Yeah, I subscribe to the latter very much so. Um, I cringe when I see the 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 phrase, we need to be more like NASCAR. NASCAR, like, I what, watched NASCAR like, last week. Holy shit, that was terrible. Like, They're trying well, too what, hard to do the same thing. Like where they want to be accepted by the mainstream so bad that they tried to make it, they tried for their championship chase to make everybody an athlete. Like even the pit crew guys were athletes. And I get it, like that is a physical job and stuff like that. But rather than just embrace the fact, yo, this is NASCAR. They tried to make it something that it's not. And we cannot yeah, allow I dirt mean, bike I, racing to do that. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I tell my kids. Be yourself. You know, stop trying to be someone else. We are not NASCAR. We're not midget cars. We're not NFL. We're dirt bike racing. And we should just be proud of who we are and what we are. Now, at the same time, I don't cringe when I see, okay, I am exponentially less hip than you are. I don't, when, an, when an artist like shows up in the mainstream wearing like Fox jersey or whatever, it's a whole Supreme thing. I just kind of shrug. I don't get upset at it. I don't rally behind it. I just, I'm like, that's cool. You know, I mean, it's funny that people get upset at that. Yet at the same time, like, why aren't we more mainstream? Why, why, why are we not seeing, you know, supercross highlights on sports center? Why aren't we in the, you know, the newspapers, but yet they balk when a, when a recording artist shows up in a Vogue ad, you know, or some interest in it. Yeah. Salma Hayek or whatever. I, I can't remember who that was, was riding on the back of a dirt bike. That, that meme. Selena that went, Gomez. Yes, yes. I, I don't even know who that is. Um, but I remember seeing that photo, and I just thought it was kind of funny, you know? I, I don't get upset at stuff like that. Like, why? You know? Yeah, it's poserish, you know? But so what? You know? Dirt bikes. Like, we ride dirt bikes for a living. We write about dirt bikes. We photograph dirt bikes. Life's pretty damn good, mm-hmm. you know? I'll admit that, like, uh, when I first started at Transworld, like full time, I kind of got into that. I fell into that little pit of like make fun of people that wear jerseys to the races and stuff like that. And in retrospect, I cringe so bad at that because I was the 12, 13 year old kid that wore his jersey to the St. Louis Supercross because I was so mm-hmm. pumped to show everybody I have a Fox Honda jersey. And we got to not shame people. Like if somebody shows an interest in this, however they want to do it, we need to embrace it because. We should be happy that there's another person in the world that wants to share how badass dirt bikes are. Because it's the only yeah, way this thing is going to grow, is just to make it an inclusive thing instead of being like, oh no, you have to be vetted before you can even pick up a copy of the magazine or follow somebody on Instagram or whatever. Yeah, I mean, just be more accepting, you know. And to wrap up the Katy Perry story, so found out through Mark's reporting, Harley didn't pay a dime for any of that. That was completely genuine on her part. And I think that's also important in storytelling, like being genuine. Like I, and I try to model myself after that in, in all my posts and all my reporting, you know, like I'm only doing things that I'm genuinely interested in. Like no one's paying me to do it. I don't, I don't accept any kind of like paid promotions or swag. You know, I don't want any of those influences. Um, so yeah, to wrap up, the, to wrap up that story about the Harleys, you know, she did it from a completely genuine point of view. Harley did donate bikes for the, the, the music video, but they didn't pay anything for that exposure. Yeah. And you can't, that was just because she was interested in writing a song about riding Harleys in Hawaii. Wow. And you can't, 
the amount of money that it would cost for those impressions is unbelievable. Yes, and Mark wrote about that in the article, so mm-hmm. it's it's pretty interesting. Go find it. Because anybody, if you follow music videos, uh, the number one company that has kept music videos alive over the last like three years is Beats. If you look closely at a music video, there's always a Beats headphone or a Beats pill or some kind wow. of soundbar. They've invested so much to make sure the music videos stay around through product placement. Wow. Yep. Hey, thanks, dude. This was fun. We might have to do this again, just catch up maybe a couple weeks into the Supercross season. We get a feel for what's going on because what you see and what I see are two totally different things, but it's an interesting point of view that comes together in the same way. Yeah, man. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, man. Uh, WeWentFast.com. Act fast if you're going to get the book. We went fast at Instagram. Is there anything else you want to plug? Uh, WeWentFast.com slash shop. I got lots of fun t-shirts. Oh, and you need to go check out my YouTube page. I posted a video a couple days ago um, that goes along with the Moto Icons t-shirt that is now for sale at WeWentFast.com slash shop. It'll give you goosebumps. You'll love it. It's got my favorite announcers in there. All right, sick. Thanks, Brett. I appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, Anton. Bye. Bye, dude.